Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly dungeon muser today. Uh, today, we're going to do some catch-up on our state of play for our various games that we have going. And I think I'll talk a little bit about uh, games that I'm going to be getting to the table um, in the near future. And I guess I'll, two other exciting things. Uh, one is the uh, coming uh, version of the gaming marathon uh, that I uh, have planned for this year. Every year, I uh, normally go home to my, uh, or go back to my hometown, and uh, we have this massive, you know, sprawling 16-hour thing where we play games with some uh, friends that I grew up with. Uh, and uh, because of the current crisis, I'm not able to do that. So I have come up with an alternative uh, that I'm excited about. And that's kind of that. So uh, let's get to the episode. So, um, first, I think we what I'll do, I'll get the state of play. Let's talk about that first, and then uh, I'll organize this by games. First is our Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game that uh, runs every second uh, weekend. Uh, and what with that one, we, I think we're up to 33 sessions of that now. And the the last couple sessions, last session was, um, we had, we were down some people, and I think that some people were tired and, and uh the current stress, uh, or the stress of the current uh, crisis, I think was was uh, um, maybe affecting some of the play. So it wasn't our best session, but it was still a pretty solid uh, game. That particular game right now has been in kind of a, it's been in a, a a state of basically waiting for the army for the of the second sons. It, that that campaign has been in the last little while with the players uh, kind of hold up in their keep in Iron Fang keep and then waiting to see what happens with this um, army that's been outside. There's been a little bit of a uh, couple forays into the uh, the keep itself by the enemy. Uh, our heroes talked about going out there, then they discovered something else in the keep. That kind of distracted them for one or two sessions. And then um, we just finally had the the actual army attack. And uh, uh, it, it's... I, I'm glad to see... You know, one of the things that, that happens with this kind of sandbox play is... Um, I don't necessarily feel like I, it's a weird tension between, uh, like pacing, uh, the, the game, uh, while also trying to, you know, reinforce that sort of persisting world element. And sometimes those two things run cross purposes. And what, um, I, I think we will all be quite happy to see the end uh, of the uh, uh, the current arc with uh, the uh, Second Son's army. Not because they haven't proven to be, you know, um, an interesting adversary necessarily, but they've because it's been persisting for so long and it's just been sort of like little nibbling bites taken out of either the heroes or the enemies, I think that it has just felt like more like a dull, like a uh, persisting annoyance more so than the looming threat that it might have otherwise felt like. So, um, for that reason, I'm, I'm, you know, we're, we just started off the big, uh, battle. We left it hanging in there and we'll be this coming Saturday concluding hopefully that, uh, that big battle. But once that's done, uh, I, then the players will be kind of the masters of their own destiny again. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to be happening then, assuming they survive the, the conflict, I, I mean, but the, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a, I think that what I would um, what I might do next time if I ran something like this again. Um, well, actually, let's see how it plays out. Maybe it'll, you know, I'll wait till the, the, the whole thing with the Second Sons is done, but I feel like there's there's definitely lessons I could learn from this um, where, 
you know, fidelity to the sandbox, you know, persisting world, maybe it's not necessarily the most important thing <laughs> in that um, controlling the tempo of the game. And I mean, I have been doing that. I thought I was doing that to a degree with some other stuff happening that was allowing the players to affect it. But in any event, um, yeah, so that that's that's otherwise, I mean, the you know, it's a great group of players that we've been playing with for that. It's, you know, we've been going quite a while for uh, with that campaign. And it's a really terrific game. Um, I uh, definitely am looking forward to uh, segueing into a, like a little bit more time passing with this. And uh, I'm going to start keeping a calendar in that campaign as well, too. I, I have not done so uh, to date in that one. And uh, partly because, we, I mean, we didn't have an actual calendar to work from. I know that the setting of uh, Tule in... Uh, not Tule, in... Of the... Uh, what, what do you call it? Hyperborea. The, the default setting for the game it has a calendar but because of the way that the like the, that particular game if you're not aware the setting is basically a disc that floats around Saturn that may or may not be at the you know nearing the time when uh, the the sun is burning out so it's you know uh, it's a very very unusual calendar for it and I just for myself it was it did not fit for how I wanted to run the game um, so I, I don't use that calendar, uh, but, and as a result of that, we didn't really have a calendar I was working from. With it, I had to do it again. I probably would have kept it just to have a sense of how much time had passed in the campaign. But, you know, um, the only way, you know, we can, uh, this is how we, we learn is by making uh, mistakes. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to once that calendar starts, you know, from the time when, um, hopefully, uh, Iron Fan Keep is, is firmly in their control and they, see what goes forward from there so that's pretty cool and i feel like there's lessons i've learned from the running night below as well too in terms of how to sort of fit the balance between a story-based game and a site-based game and a uh a sandbox so yeah um the heroes are collectively i think around fifth level right now uh for that so we are about uh, coming up on a year and a half into that campaign and the heroes are about a quarter of the way through the, oh no it's less levels in uh, Ash we actually may be coming up close to um, midway point for the levels in the game so that's going to be that's interesting that that definitely opens up a whole host of new adversaries that I can make use of in the uh, in the campaign and um, yeah I mean it's it, it was the game that inspired Night Below it's the game that in, you know, that Night Below in turn led to our Legacy of the Crystal Shard game so I'm very, very grateful for that game. I, I really enjoy everyone we play with. Uh, we've had one new player join uh, that particular game, and he's been a great addition as well. And, yeah, I mean, I, I got nothing to complain about about that uh, particular game. I'm really looking forward to seeing where things go with it afterwards. And I got some pretty great stuff um, planned for them as well. So, yeah, so the state of play for Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers, Hyperborea is strong. All right, so next up is our Night Below campaign, the state of play of that. And at present, we just had session 39 of the Night Below game. Uh, our heroes are a mix of fourth and fifth, no, third to fifth level, depending on the character and the class and, and whatnot. And uh, that particular game is uh, is also, boy, like what a lot of fun playing that one. We, we had some really, the last little while we had uh, our first, like, uh, first boss fight in uh, in that campaign, which was really really fun, uh, and then uh, we wrapped up our first dungeon in that, which was the the exploration of uh, Heathertop Warren, 
which I now uh, am free to reveal was, uh, maybe I mentioned this in the previous podcast, but it was a reskin dungeon from the Rise of the Rune Lords uh, adventure path from Paizo. Uh, Paizo makes some fantastic maps and uh, great dungeons, so I, I was quite happy to steal that one for uh, for this particular adventure. Um, the Let's see here. Uh, we Our last session, we had a really interesting development. We've got a couple of these. So the last little while, the characters have been, maybe like two or three sessions, the characters have been getting their training done. So they've been going and, and uh, getting the necessary training done. We use optional rules for, or some modified home, homebrew versions of the training rules uh, for uh, for this campaign. And uh, our heroes had to complete that. They also completed a task for one of the, um, one of the trainers uh, as well. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. So we had that, and then we had, in the last uh, session, we had the development where the um, the players were negotiating, or they came back to sort of talk about the, one of the big, like the big first quest that they were doing for the local kind of, um, you know, nobility was to identify what was causing all this flooding in one of the uh, regions. And spoilers uh, for those who have not gotten uh, caught up, who are interested in watching the Night Below campaign, or you're planning on playing the Night Below campaign, I'd, I'd just skip this uh, segment here so nothing spoiled for you. Um, but what we um, what we did, or uh, what they were hired for, was to find out what was causing this. And it wasn't quite clear in the contract, or I didn't, you know, bring up what was, you know, that they were expressly to turn over what was causing the flooding to the to the Lord. But my expectation was, like, once it kind of came up, we were taught in the session last night, we were, the guys, uh, you know, had this conversation with the Lord, and he basically said, all right, well, I'm, you know, uh, you agree to turn this over to me then, right? And the players were very much like, well, no, it's our, it's our magic item now. And the, what, it, what had turned out, the, the cause of the flooding was this, um, uh, this ring that was uh, damaged, magical ring of uh, elemental command that was damaged, that was causing water to accumulate, and it didn't do like directly from the ring, and it didn't uh, necessarily, you know, cause uh, huge flooding immediately. What it was was that over time, water would accumulate in the in the local sort of you know um, uh, aquifer, and then it would flood the uh, the region. So that's what happened in um, in this place that was called the new Myers, a bunch of farmhouses that were flooded and uh anyway so the the players um got uh uh what do you call it they got uh so the players uh had already identified this thing as a, a pretty cool magic item that was going to get cooler over time but once the lord heard out heard that oh this is causing this stuff and that they the players were intending to go back into the wild his question was, well, what happens if you die out there? Then I'm suddenly going to have flooding on my, on my land again. Um, so he just kept it. Uh, and or Really what he said was, well, what do you want to do with this? And uh, he decided to, you know, keep it uh, overnight. And the players just really did, did not react well to that whatsoever. They were just, um, that's ours, that's ours. you got to give it to us. It's not lawful. And they went to the local sheriff and whatnot. And this is... It was one of those, I, I mean, to be honest, I didn't really uh, foresee either of those two things happening, but it's just part of the, like, trying to run a, um, you know, a persisting, convincing world. Uh, it's just, like, it made sense that, of course, this guy wants to keep the, the ring. And 
the more the players were demanding and stuff, the more I was like, well, he's a noble, you're not. So, of course, like, you guys, like, if you guys want to try and take it from sure, but, I mean, like, there's going to be consequences, obviously, from that. Um, and the players ended up going to another NPC and talked it over with him, and it was a lawful good god, uh, cleric of a lawful good, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, lawful good god. Uh, it was uh, St. Cuthbert, for those who are familiar with uh, Greyhawk. And they talked it over with them, and it was sort of framed... Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. I've I'm, I'm been re-watching a bit of this session, and the thing that was interesting is just, like, the players were really struggling with just how unfair that was, or they felt it was unfair to them. And um, I don't know how they're going to react. Like, one of them uh, has actively spit on the on the Lord's floor at one point on the way out, and that's clearly going to have consequences. And what they the Lord had offered to feed you know, more jobs to them, uh, in future, but I mean, if, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, it's, it's interesting, not, like, from, from a, um, you know, an observer's perspective, as, as just the observer of, of this going on, it was really interesting to see the players react that way, and I, um, uh, I, you know, I've always known that, like, once you give something to a player, it's really hard to take away from them, and that really wasn't my intent in this one, uh, what had happened is just, it just made sense, right? Like, it was, because of this thing, that the the Lord, there's no way he would want them traipsing around with it. And then they started uh, grilling the Lord, well, what are you going to do with it? And to which, of course, his response is, none of your goddamn business what I do with my ring on my land or whatever. So it, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's, there's interesting times where, you know, you get into a flow, especially with these, these um, uh, if you're running a, a world that is, supposed to be a um, a persisting kind of, you know, convincing, reactive world, I sometimes find myself overly correcting, you know, to make sure the players know, like, look, this is me role-playing, I am not a um, you know, this character is saying this, it is not necessarily Kev the DM who's saying this, um, and also who's taking this response, you know, I'm not trying to and I might do that maybe too often, um, but I guess I my, my instinctual feeling is that I have to do this. To, to, I would. It is the lesser of the of the two sins is is me doing that as opposed to them thinking that I am shepherding them in one direction or another, you know. And and um, in this case, it was just it was a really uh, it was an unexpected twist where the players were. It seemed like they were ready to either break in or try and like take up arms against this dude over this ring and. I don't know if it's if it's a if that is genuinely like you know the, the the whole thing about these persisting worlds is that it's supposed to be that the heroes are not the the players are not necessarily they're not special they're not the precious you know whatever th- people uh, you know that they're the world doesn't revolve around them and the interesting challenge that that we've got right now is that if the players take up arms against this guy well they're criminals then you know i mean this is not a might makes right kind of thing and if if they don't i mean it's going to leave i don't know i i don't know what how far the, the players are willing to take it they did manage to talk one of the characters down from sort of like refusing to leave the the lord's air you know um uh quarters but you know because of the character's capabilities of uh, in combat, and because they, um, 
they... I don't know. Like, I don't know how much metagaming they're doing or whether they're even thinking about the fact that, you know, whether they could take this town or not. It feels like I'm going to have to put my thumb on the scale to, uh, you know, if, if I want to deter it, uh, the, the, the characters doing that kind of stuff, which runs counter to sort of the persisting world stuff, um, I'd have to sort of jack up the levels of all the guards. In which case, why is there a bunch of fourth or fifth level guards kicking around doing this menial work? Um, you know, it, it's an interesting, it's the first sort of instance of like, uh, one of the players was joking about murder hoboing. Um, and I don't know if it's quite that, but I mean, it definitely would be, I don't think that like the players definitely and the characters did not feel it was, you know, it was, they were being unjust, uh, in, in what they were demanding for, but it's a neat yeah, it was just, it was a really interesting challenge to being like, well, shit, like, what, what am I being, uh, you know, where's my fidelity lie to the, to the persisting world, uh, or to the, the, the story, the budding story we've got. And I think the answer is I just say, fuck it. Like, let's just see where it goes. You know, there is not a prescribed outcome here. There's not a prescribed way that this should turn out. So I think what I have to do is just say, fine, let's, you know, whatever you guys do, that's what is, you know, we'll, we'll roll with that. Um, because I don't know. I mean, like that's, that's just what this, that's what this whole campaign is about. And that's going to be interesting, um, to see what happens. And I don't, you know, um, what the prep I've got to do between now and then is just to make sure I've got in, in mind that the, the possibility of what's going to, what the response would be. But it sure made for a very, very interesting session. The session was tainted a little bit because we were having some um, uh, streaming issues. And, and uh, I, from what I hear, it's actually common across the spectrum. A lot of uh, tabletop uh, streamers are having issues with their ISP, um, you know, ch- throttling their bandwidth. Uh, and um, I don't know if that's the issue or not. I've, I've worked a workaround. And what I'm going to do is just have a separate, um, you know, live stream um, videos and I'm going to have the actual, you know, on the, the actual video recorded separately. And if we do have issues with streaming again, I'm just going to upload it separately. Um, but, 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 um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm looking forward to tomorrow's session. Uh, it, it's, it's going to be interest, interesting to see what they do. And we had a really good role-playing session, the session before that as well, too. It was really great. So, I mean, I guess like the, it seems like there's an interesting, um, you know, kind of persisting, not tension, but some persisting interesting issues between wanting to sort of lean in the direction of story game or, or of a you know emergent play in a, and a persisting world, and also trying to give some structure to that and provide some kind of narrative uh, to to that stuff. And maybe what I'll do is I'm going to end this segment here, and I'll I'll do a start a, sep- a separate segment to talk about that. Okay, so I just spent a little bit of time talking to myself because I forgot to hit uh, record. <laughs> so I'll try and go back. But what I was thinking of is the uh, the tension that I'm, I'm sort of feeling um, between the, you know, needing to give sort of, uh, you know, grabbing those story elements and playing them up for dramatic purposes in these uh, sandbox games that we're playing and also allowing the world to sort of react in a credible and believable uh, manner. And it, 
the tension is not necessarily bad either. Like I don't mean that as a critical or negative thing. Um, the the tension between the those two elements really makes for some really fun uh, and unexpected uh, results. You know, like the story element stuff. I think really comes from just. Um, I guess maybe like for, let's talk about what the what I mean by those two terms because when I say sandbox and what I'm what I'm thinking of is that players can go and do what they want but what there is is there is a persisting world happening out there you know if people and um, things are uh, you know organizations and whatnot they're pursuing their own goals at the same time and things are happening in their lives at the same time the players you know are are doing their things as well too um usually i don't start the momentum going on those until they actually enter the players lives either by being introduced to them directly or by hearing about them but that has definitely proven to be a a fun um yeah, really fun thing to you got to make sure you take good notes and keep and remember what's going on to be able to call back to that stuff. But um, you know, it what it uh, what it does is it, it allows for a really um, you know a, a world that does react in a credible and believable way. But if you are choosing to value uh, traditional sort of pacing and and you know story structure and stuff like that you're going to have to sort of do that stuff on the fly. You're going to be throwing that stuff together as you, um, you know, as the, the, the campaign develops because the you, you're not necessarily moving the characters through a three-act structure kind of thing. You know, it, it is the players are doing things that they have initiated and the world is reacting to that the way that the world would incredibly react and the pitfalls of that is sometimes you you know the constant reaction if you're leaning on that too much it does result in no dramatic pacing and, and you know I think that the, the problem with uh, you know sort of the, the like the time we've been spending with these um, second sons in our ash game which may, I mean could very well be have been half of our campaign has been dealing with these assholes and if that's the case, it's just, I I think that if I was to sit down and structure it out, I definitely would have resolved things with them a little quicker, or at least given small stages of resolution towards it. And I mean, I can do that as well, too, with how, what I choose to introduce to the to the game as well, too. But I, I try not to put my, I keep using the, the term thumb on the scale, but I mean, that, that really is it. Like, I feel like I don't want to, push things too far into the like we're just in you know you guys playing through a structured adventure kind of mode here um and i mean i also don't want to be so adverse to that to say just like all right have it just be a series of like effectively home movies you know where there's not really a connective story uh tissue connecting all of these different events it's just like and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens and fortunately we have not had uh, you know seen that be the case um and i guess maybe there's just the one way to avoid that is to not presume conclusions you know i think my not issue but like my concern about the the way that the um uh things developed in our last night below 
campaign, you know, I was worried afterwards about, like, shit, like, did I just blow up the, you know, this as a home base for our characters? But I would not have changed the way that things played out. I would not have changed the way I role-played any of the characters. That's just sort of the way things worked, and that is part of the unexpected fun. And we actually had uh, a viewer uh, respond, too, about how interesting it was to see that, that, that interesting role-playing and the, the dilemma come from the way that the character reacted. And I really wish I could take credit for having planned that, but it really wasn't. It was just a matter of sticking to that, you know, persisting world and, and how I thought the character would react to what was happening. Um, that just, you know, that, that's the way things played out. So it's, yeah, man, like it's, it's kind of... Um, I don't know how things are going to work out in that campaign, um, but and this is probably the closest that uh, I have come in any of our ongoing games where something has happened that it really flies kind of close to the like oh shit how are we gonna you know is this gonna blow up the campaign and I for one think that um, if I do feel that way I need to adjust my perspective because. It's not going to blow up a campaign. It just means the campaign will be about something different than what I thought it was, you know? And if that does dramatically change things, then that's okay because, you know, we're still playing D&D. We're still having a a blast playing. It just means that different things will be going on. So, you know, um, and it it may require... I I can't... I guess I, I don't know where things are going to end up and maybe that's where my uncertainty is and what I should be feeling is like, this is what it's like to, you know, work with a, a net, right? Is, is that you, you just, uh, whatever uh, consequences fall, in the same way that we allow characters to die in our campaigns, if that's how things play out, I need to let the assumed conclusion of the campaign uh, die if that's the way things go. It doesn't mean the campaign's over. It just means that it's going to be a dramatic shift, and that's pretty fucking exciting. You know, and it certainly will make for a very interesting, um, yeah, very interesting, uh, um, I mean, a very interesting game to run when you think it's going to be able to one thing, but then it sort of goes maybe in another direction. So, and that's it. And I mean, like, I guess, you know, on a, on a related note, um, what this has taught me, having run you know, uh, a sandbox game of, with, with some story focus to it as well too, a sandbox story focus with AD&D now for uh, f- almost 40 sessions, so that's almost 120 hours of playing AD&D uh, in the last little while, that and uh, playing through uh, the more story focused game in Legacy of the Crystal Shard um, I am more convinced now that I could use AD&D for more things than just a, a sandbox game. So let's maybe do this. I'm going to transition now to talk about the state of, state of play in Legacy of the Crystal Shard, and then I'll transition to talk more about AD&D second. So let's do that. So the state of play in our uh, Icewind Dale or Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign uh, is also going really, really well, and it's a, it's a very different style of play than uh, what we're we're doing in uh, our Night Below game. In uh, in that campaign, we've seen a whole lot more combat uh, than we did early on in the uh, in the Night Below campaign. There's a lot of uh, a lot more of just sort of like the characters getting their feet and and whatnot in the uh, 
in the Night Below campaign initially with them kind of role-playing and like the sporadic encounters and there wasn't these big, big fights uh, the way there has been in, in uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard. Legacy of the Crystal Shard has seen fights with, you know, 40 zombies or 15 ghouls, like really challenging fights as well too. And we've also had our first like, well, it's, I mean, technically the fight with um, Malfeshnikor, the, um, the soul gorger in our... Uh, Night Below campaign that technically happened before the um, before the campaign or for the, uh, the the cloaker fight in uh, the uh, what do you call it in our Legacy of the Crystal Shard game. But the cloaker was the first sort of big flying you know creature that we I've introduced like you know the closest thing to sort of a a dragon uh, and God dang what a fight holy shit was it fun like I I mean. I, if you had asked me before we ran that session, you know, whether it would have been as tactical and as dynamic and as, you know, as special uh, a, a, a combat as, you know, say boss fights are in um, fourth edition D&D or in uh, Pathfinder second, I would have said, no, I mean, like it, it probably wouldn't be, but holy Christ, was I wrong? Like, a cloaker is it's a fir- and it's the first time I used a cloaker in a game, uh, which was, you know, I mean, interesting. Uh, not interesting. It was a fucking awesome monster. Like it's a great. The second edition version of the monster is super super cool. Really challenging. Like lots of nasty stuff to not only um, you know to manage the uh, uh, a big group of characters, but like it has a ton of great abilities that affect um, more than just one character. Like there's the really crippling stuff, which is the whole... It's got a, a moan it can do that can hold person. And that... And it lasts a flat five rounds. And that's a long time to be sitting around doing nothing. Um, that only affects one person. But then there's other things like a fear effect and a nausea effect that have ran, either random uh, durations or they um, the very limited duration. And uh, it was just awesome and you know the neat little mathematical trick it does in second edition which I think is the same as at first where the damage of the bite is is a function of your armor class so it is 1d6 plus your armor class in damage and that's god like for the unarmored um, characters it's just an ungodly 1d6 plus 10 and then you compare that to the characters who are wearing heavy armor who are taking 1d6 plus 2 like it's a big 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 difference and really makes that difference in armor feel uh noticeable and present in a way that i've never seen in that game in any other manner so it was really really cool and the yeah i mean and i guess like the the way that that particular adventure sets up the uh the the story you know it really throws the players in and um there's i've added some stuff to make for a more personal connection in it, but it's just been a really, really fun, like fun role playing, really intense combat. Um, and the characters, I'm not doing training in it. So the characters are gaining levels really quickly. Like we've got, uh, I think everyone highest level is fourth. Lowest is about third, I think. Uh, so, uh, the way that, um, the, um, characters are gaining in 10 sessions we've we've played, uh, no, 11 sessions. They've all now reached that many levels. That is pretty quick. And, I, th- I mean, it's, it's a function of how much combat we've had. But, um, 
Yeah, I mean, the amount of time that's passed in the in the in the span of those levels is pretty fast. So I don't think I would. Um, yeah, I, I definitely would use training again in future uh, because I, I feel like that is just it, it strains credulity to have gained that many levels that quickly. And I'm trying to think what else with that one. So one of the interesting things with that one is there's like taking clocks in the in the in the way that the campaign is set up with different kind of factions doing different things. It's a sandbox, but it also has um, story-focused things that are happening very, very quickly in different parts. So I think the sense of urgency in that campaign is a lot higher than it is in other games, in the other games we run. Um, and I really, like, boy, does it seem to have a, uh, a motivating factor or motivating um, element to how the players are are responding you know like uh, there there's an urgency to the campaign and things are happening a lot faster than they are in a lot of the other games and um while i do normally love to have the characters you know smell the roses it's pretty cool to see the characters thrown in and having to you know deal with thing after thing after thing it's it's a really cool adventure it's definitely when i design my next um sandbox i'm definitely gonna have to think about doing that is is you know get them in motion right away because it really has proven to be a pretty good uh, um, yeah a really good way of, of keeping the, the excitement up on it without forcing the characters through specific steps I also like that the campaign allow I, I'm required to write an awful lot of stuff for it uh, because it's the what is happening in the campaign is very bare bones you know in terms of um, what scripted events are happening and like when they happen like in comparison to a path a paizo adventure path this is in at best like a loose outline of what an adventure is so uh the other uh thing that i think i like um a great deal about the way that they set things up is it's very easy to get the players invested in what's going on just because like it really feels i should check with my players on this but i mean i i think it feels like them like there's just so much shit going on uh which means that they're not struggling to try and there's, there's not a lot of time to dither over do we do this or do we do that it's a lot of just like shit we've got this to deal with right now so let's deal with it and the bit of discussion that, that is going on usually is um, is quite urgent you know um, we had one session where we did sort of spin wheels for a, a bit longer than perhaps they should have where there was a lot of uh, you know deciding what to do blah, blah, blah. but in that particular campaign I think we've got like 10 or 10 or 11 players in it uh, and it is you know that that's a lot of players to have at the table and you want to with everyone wanting to have a, sometimes a voice in it um, you know it just it, sometimes stuff does need to get sort of chewed over a little too too much although that's very very to be honest that's only really one time that that happened and then the guys have been catching it since then the group of players in that particular campaign as well are just just like in the other two games to be honest i'm very 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 fortunate to play with some really amazing players who just and it, what i mean by an amazing player is like they are prepared to play they show up on time they you know they role play their characters well they recognize it's a team sport um they for the most part try and you know, know the rules and things like that and they approach everything. I don't have anyone who is, you know, um, role playing a character that is necessarily or intentionally tr like 
running contrary to what everyone else is uh, doing or intending to do. And it's not to say that everyone is just sort of like going along with what everybody wants, you know? Like, I don't like when players do that, where it's just like they, they, they totally, totally avoid any kind of, you know, um, intra-party conflict. I don't necessarily need that. But what they're... Because yeah, there is. There's some f- hilarious tension in our Night Below campaign between uh, Dorm- our gnome um, thief illusionist, Dorman Kettleborn, and Drune, uh, Axe Brother, the... Um, uh, Drune is the dwarven um, priest of uh, Clangadin uh, Silverbeard. There's a hilarious sort of running joke between the two of them, and, and that's... Uh, yeah, it's just... It is a... Yeah. I don't know. It's just a really, really amazing group of players we're playing with. And it's gotten me... Or it's gotten me gotten. What the fuck? <laughs> it's clearly been a long week quarantine is affecting my ability to speak English it, it has me thinking quite a bit about AD&D in general, AD&D 2nd in particular uh, and how versatile that game can be, particularly if, when you're introducing different house rules, you know and, and my favored way of sort of tweaking the feel of the game at the table is through the Astonishing Fortune and I'm going to talk about AD&D 2nd in general some ideas I have for uh, future sessions and sort of my feeling on that in general and how that's changed as I've been running different games. So let's talk about AD&D second now. Okay, uh, we've had a great deal of time pass between uh, when I recorded those earlier segments and uh, this current segment. So I'm, uh, uh, I, I thought about just doing a new episode um, about this separately and posting an existing one, but I felt like I wanted to do a, a wrap up on the other one. So. Instead, you're getting a very, very long uh, episode because I think I've got a bit to say about this uh, topic. So um, the last, I guess, it does tie in with a sort of state of play in, uh, in that what I uh, want to talk about is a game called Degenesis from Six More Vodka, uh, which is, Six More Vodka is a game studio, but it's primarily an art studio. Um, the, uh, it's a bunch of illustrators uh, led by uh, Marko Djurdovic, who... Uh, are insanely talented and do incredible, not only illustrations, but design work as well, too. And it really shows in the Degenesis product. Um, if you're not familiar with Degenesis, Degenesis uh, is a post-apocalyptic game uh, that is set um, in a world that has many of the characteristics and trappings that um, you know come with what or what you would expect in a post-apocalyptic game. Uh, but they are distinctly less... Uh, silly, I think, than what uh, some post-apocalyptic games do, uh, in the sense that uh, particularly the more like like wild elements of post-apocalyptic role-playing games or post-apocalyptic fiction, like you know special powers and mutants and you know that kind of stuff, um, yeah, religious cults and and things like that. So it's um, yeah, like before I say any more, what I'll say is that. All of the PDFs uh, for the game, including the core rules, all of the adventures published to date, uh, the newest supplement uh, and the newest setting books. Uh, so the newest supplement is called Artifacts. The newest um, setting is called Justician. And all of that is free at degenesis.com. So if you want to check us out yourself, you can get all the PDFs for free. The books are more tricky to track down. If you want to have actual physical copies, they are more expensive, um, but... That is just the way things are. 
the most recent edition, uh, so they had a previous edition of the game that was called the Rebirth Edition, which was technically their second uh, printing of uh, Genesis, and then in the, the most recent uh, relaunch is called, uh, I can't remember to be honest, it's a, it's a Latin phrase, but it comes in a much, the only one they've got right now has the slipcase of the two books that make up Degenesis and uh, as well a bunch of other extra stuff in this massive box. And um, it's it, it definitely pre- presents as a barrier to people who want to have physical, like me, who want physical copies. Uh, I had a hard time tracking down my copy of uh, Rebirth or, because I actually ended up having to get something from Australia uh, sent to me. And I'm glad I did because the game is amazing. Uh, but the uh, it definitely means that um, it's this strange kind of situation where PDFs are ubiquitous. It's super easy to get that stuff. But if you do want print copies or copies for your shelf, you do need to uh, shell out some pretty uh, uh, significant, substantial coins for it. Um, the The game itself is... Um, maybe what I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Degenesis first. And then I want to, what the topic that I want to talk about is depth of setting, which I think really it serves as an interesting counterpoint to the, uh, to the emergent play that I was talking about earlier in this episode. And the, the like, um, emergent play is uh, something I've enjoyed a, a great deal. Um, but the, the experience I had with uh, the Genesis, with its very, very deep setting, um, which didn't feel like it was full of trivia. You know, um, one of the things, I'll talk about particulars of the setting in a moment here, but the Genesis is, let's talk about the the, the, the um, approach, or at least the philosophical approach that the designers uh, appear to have uh, as far as the relationship with their end user is concerned. The Setting of, like I said, the, the books, the actual physical books for Genesis are hard to get a hold of. PDFs are free, which is amazing. You know, you can get, and it's the, it's the full game. So they have this way of now making the game available, and they constantly post new stuff on there as well, too. New backstory, new lore. The, um, the rules are very simple. Uh, it's a dice pool mechanic where you're rolling a number of D6s on a 1 to 3, you fail on a four to six you succeed and if you roll a six you also trigger or you uh, achieve something called a trigger which is a uh kind of like what edge or advantage or uh momentum is in um say uh fantasy fight star wars or the modifius uh 2d20 games um it represents the quality of your success so it's a it's a bigger success a more substantial outcome and those specific triggers have a numerical effect in the case of some um, some things like, like combat. Triggers add to your damage. Um, <clears throat> and the reason is, I think, that they went with a simpler uh, uh, dice mechanic, or at least a set of rules, is because, you know, the the bulk of the interest about the setting is the, uh, uh, is or the game is, is the setting. And um, <clears throat> the, so there is a very active discord server for the genesis as well and for people who are casual and trying to get into the genesis what the answer seems to be in most cases is when you're asking about the lore or whatnot is it's in the book and the books that come from the core rule book are two of them there's catharsis with a k which is their game mechanics and and like how you build characters and stats for adversaries and things like that 
equipment. It's, it's sort of the player's guide. And then there's Primal Punk, which is the guide to the world. And what they say to do is read Primal Punk first and then go to Catharsis. And, you know, I mean, like any good, you know, former contrarian, I, I uh, was like, well, fuck no. And I started reading them both in, in concert. As I was reading through one, I'd be referring back to the other. Um, the books are written in such a way that uh, it feels very much like an in-world artifact. So the concept of um, a unreliable narrator follows through to the actual game itself. So it means that, and that reminds me uh, very much of second and third edition Shadowrun, and to be honest, first edition Shadowrun as well, as well as some of the White Wolf products. Uh, the idea that as you're as a DM, you're also reading about. There's no like um, dis or what do you call it, uh, like disinterested omniscient objective view that's not 100 percent true because there are like you get stats for say like the uh the uh, what are they called the uh, uh the psychovores which are like the transformed humans who uh, have all sorts of crazy uh, abilities and powers you know depending on where what geographic location they're from they could control minds with spores they could alter the world with uh psychokinetic uh, force uh, they could, I don't know. I mean, there's all sorts of different uh, abilities that they, they could have. They could see the future. Um, so you've got some hard and fast stuff in, the, in terms of the rules there. But you've also got a, um, uh, you also got otherwise like a guide to the world through the eyes of someone who's in it. And that is, for me, it was really, it was really uh, enjoyable to get through because the world is very interesting. And there's lots of, of neat things to learn about and, and as a DM to ha get your imagination going uh, for, for what you could do with this world. But it's not brief. Like it's, it's not a kind of thing where you can flip through a couple pages and then be ready to run the game. And there's, a, there's quite a few games that are like that. Uh, you know, I, uh, um, Numenera is like that. Uh, Simba Room is definitely like that. Um, the Eclipse Phase is like that where like you can't just take, you can't nibble at the setting. You need to take a big bite, chew it over, and then be uh, in order to, uh, to run the thing. But in this game, um, it's, it's really, you know, the, the, the approach of the, uh, of the publishers and the fans of the game to say, oh, just read the book, just read the book. Because it, it, it is all in there. You know, like the, in fairness to, to that kind of answer, they're not wrong. It's in there. So if you need an answer to it, you can probably find it in there, or it's intentionally been left as an uncertainty. You know, there's some things that are are specifically not answered by the by the game, um, and part of that is because you know it's it's building mystique for adventures, but also part of it's because they're just leaving it to you. You know, um, we may not find the answer to. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain we're not going to find the answer to. Uh, all of the sort of mysteries that are in there, but they give you enough of a suggestion so that if you do want to make an adventure of it, you can do that. And uh, I'm being vague about those what those things are because I don't want to spoil anything for, you know, part of the fun of reading through the books. And I, I realize now I'm falling right into the, the same trap that, not trap, the same um, response that uh, the other fans of this game have, which is like, oh no, just read the books, just read the books. And part of it is because it is so enjoyable to experience that world in that way. Now, what that means, though, is that 
for casual play, um, it's really not a, it's not a, you know, the game doesn't suit that. Um, because it's got so much stuff going on in the world, <clears throat> and so much of the rewarding play from it depends on you kind of engaging with that stuff, then it doesn't necessarily suit it. I mean, that's not true. I mean, I think you could write a very cool um, one-shot. In fact, I'm trying to come up with a one-shot for my son on this just to, uh, to introduce him to the world. And the particular game we were playing, the adventure we were playing, is their first published one for um, the Rebirth edition, which is called In Thy Blood. And it's, um, it's a very cool kind of murder mystery thing where over the course of the adventure, there's more and more elements of the setting and whatnot that are slowly kind of doled out. So the act of exploration, um, I, my buddy uh, Jason Hobbs played in our game before, and there's two things. He, he did record a little segment about this, and he referred to the setting information as fluff, and he referred to the um, learning about the setting as an info dump. And I think those are two pejorative terms that you need to address uh, or at least think about differently if you're going to be playing a game uh, like the Genesis. And I don't know if I mean a game like the Genesis. I'm going to, I'm going to restrict it to just the Genesis. Um, I mentioned two other fairly lore-heavy uh, worlds. Uh, Eclipse Phase, which I think is really cool, and learning the... The setting there, it's a very complex setting. It's a post, you know, apocalyptic sort of post-human, uh, transhumanist conspiracy game uh, or conspiracy horror game, depending on which edition's marketing you want to believe. And that game, the more you learn about the setting, the more you help you understand the, the world, the more it helps you understand how the sensibilities of the world work, you know, how monetary, how people structure their lives, how they value things, what different organizations they sort of... Uh, they belong to, and uh, Degenesis is very much in the same vein. Everything you learn about Degenesis helps you understand what life is like in this in this world. And your characters aren't too. I mean, the characters may be exploring that because it's a post-apocalyptic setting, so it means that you don't have an enormous amount of exposure to you know uh, to the wider world. You're not widely traveled. There's no like you know let's go for for different regions. So. Characters, the players themselves, characters themselves can be ignorant, which allows the players to, to play the same. They, they may not know stuff about it. Um, but the, I distinguish that from, say, the extraordinary amount of information that has been published about, say, Forgotten Realms or the information that I found when, every time I've tried to read Numenera. The difference between the two uh, that I feel is the Numenera stuff, the Forgotten Realms stuff, some of that is really good lore that helps me understand how things are in that world. But so much of it is just trivia. It's a little tidbit of fact that doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, did you know they sing this song at this tavern? Well, how the fuck does that help me understand the broader world there? Or is this just a little bit of fluff that doesn't change really, you know, it's set dressing as opposed to a, uh, a plot element or an element of the world that I can use for drama. And that's the distinction. You know, that is something you can do in, in uh, um, Eclipse Phase. Uh, every bit of information you learn is stuff you can use for drama. Same thing with, um, with uh, Degenesis. And the, uh, that, that's obviously intentional on their part. I think one of the things that is really fascinating about Degenesis, I have not seen a game 
that is so full of intention because it's precisely the game that they want to uh, to, to make. You know, it's in its second edition. Um, there's there's a couple, uh, like there is errata, but it's, it's nothing egregious. But what I mean by intention is that the setup for the different beliefs of the characters, when you're creating a character in, in the Genesis, there's three factors that play into that. There's the concept, which is sort of like their archetypical personality. There's a culture, which is one of the like seven or eight uh, different regions uh, that reflects sort of, you know, where you grew up and, and whatnot and what you were exposed to. And then it's your cult. And your cult is uh, sort of like uh, the group organization that you belong to. And that can run from the, you know, techno kind of shamans of the chroniclers to the, um, you know, death uh, priests who make use of alien uh, spores from amongst the Anubians to the, you know, holy warriors of the Anabaptist order who believe that uh, a form of kind of Gnosticism. So it's... Um, uh, each of those, the world is set up in, in, a, in a couple of different clever ways. It's set in Europe, but the, it's a Europe that has been transformed. So each of the countries is called something different. The timing of the, of the world is now a little more than 500 years since the apocalypse, uh, which is the, it's known by uh, the people in the world as the Eschaton. And the Eschaton was when some meteors, meteors slammed into the earth or some on land, some in water. And in addition to the devastation that the meteor strikes uh, wrought, there's also a spread of this alien DNA called primer that transforms everything it kind of gets in, in contact with, every living thing at least. So you have these, um, that's the source of your mutations and your special powers and, you know, many of the other trappings of it. And it makes, um, yeah, it just all of that stuff is presented in a well-thought-out, credible tangible world not only with the the reasons for why everything's happening but also how people have responded to it the way that the different characters or different uh, cults and uh, cultures have responded to those things is fascinating like it's it's a really it feels like a living breathing world that you can actually inhabit and for myself i've always struggled with post-apocalyptic games in that way because i i can't picture what that world looks like you know, like, what, what is a day-to-day? -day? I mean, I can look at what cool characters I can make, you know, in uh, Gamma World or in uh, uh, Rifts or in um, Metamorphosis Alpha, you know, uh, Mutant Call Classics. I can make these cool things, but it doesn't tell me, I, I, you know, what that actual, you know, what does a village look like? What does a trade network look like? What is uh, all those other things? And I get that into Genesis. What that means is that it requires a lot more work. You know, you do need to read this stuff. At least the DM needs to understand it and try and present it in an, in an engaging way. And I think the, for one, that kind of, um, the kind of texture we, that you get with that setting, it allows the characters, like we, we played for about um, 15 hours of uh, the Genesis over the course of the weekend, and we didn't have a single combat, you know, and part of that was deep role-playing and part of it was learning the world, but most of it was role-playing stuff. You know, we were spending some time explaining the world because none of the players had, you know, or at least most of the players hadn't read the, uh, the setting information before, so we needed to kind of get them going. But I had said from the get-go, like, look, we're not going to just get, you know, we're not going to lose ourselves in just 
talking about the you know the, the setting for you know five hours we're going to get you the baseline of what you need and then we're going to get you going uh, the players who joined a little later got kind of the short end of the stick there because we had already done a lot of that other explanation but um, the world is it does require work on the part of the players to try and either f- learn it by reading the book or figuring it out as they go along but um, the the way that the game sets up the dynamics uh, of the world, like it, it's such an interesting and and rich world with so many very different beliefs and different values in it that it just it lends itself to really good role playing without having to set up some kind of like elaborate um, you know story game style structure where you're seeing um, you know uh, you're seeing a whole mini game that people have to engage with to to model that part of it. The setting is so interesting that you want to dive in there and you want to engage with it. You want to spend time in there and interact with those uh, those people in there. And for running it, it definitely, you know, it's fun because you want to pick stuff that's cool to, uh, you know, to highlight. So it's, um, yeah, like the, the setting itself uh, and the, um, um, the, the, the gameplay... We didn't get any... We had one combat on our first night. Actually, that's not true. We played about 18 hours of it. Because um, we played... Or 17 hours of it. Because we did play again on... Um, uh, gosh. On uh, Friday night as well. But anyway. Let's talk about the actual setting. Maybe what I'll do is I'll put a pin in this one. And we'll start a new um, discussion in our next section. Okay. So let's carry on. I... Uh, since for the first section, I've had a chance to eat my breakfast, and uh, I'm gonna, about to get some coffee in me. So, uh, for, uh, please uh, forgive me if my talking or the speed of my uh, speech gets a little quicker. One other thing I, I thought of um, during uh, my uh, repast there, though, was that the I think this setting information as another way of sort of distinguishing, you know, what you're offered in the Genesis as opposed to other settings um, is. That is broad strokes stuff. Like fans of old school products will remember, you know, what what you would get for country descriptions in the old Greyhawk box set, right? And I was a big, big fan of that, and I'm, I remain a big fan of the uh, uh, from the Ashes box set, which carries on that tradition of having, you know, like a page maybe or uh, three quarters of a page, uh, and that's the description of the setting, and that's it. And then the rest of it, it's up for the DM to kind of run with. Um, that's sort of what you get in the Genesis, just that some of the ideas and some of the concepts are so big. It's not that you're told, you know, you can find this thing on the corner of X and Y street at whatever place. It's, this is, you know, what this, this region is about, you know, um, there, <clears throat> there's a region called the Balkan, which is sort of, it's the Balkans or the, um, uh, partly the Balkans and partly like, uh, um, the, uh, what do you call it? Eastern Europe or Southeastern Europe at least, and it has, I can tell you that it's got a specific type of, um, um, uh, what do you call it, a psychonaut uh, that actually works fairly closely with the different clans that are there, and the clans there are, are structured in this kind of like voivod, uh, kind of old, you know, Transylvanian or Hungarian sort of uh, medieval, you know, structures to them. Uh, but then on top of that, there's also um, some... Uh, a lot. There are some vaults where 
the there's this this group called the Palers, and that's sort of like you know the um, the albino or albino uh, underground dwellers. Uh, they're they're represented in this game as well too with this group called the or cult called the Palers, and the Palers. The explanation for them is not that they just they did they degenerated you know over the over the five hundred years that they've been you know in these vaults. It's that someone intentionally set up a sort of like a mimetic structure. So like think of it like a, a cult. It intentionally set up ways of uh, generating the cult and it, it would reinforce those and check on the progress every hundred years. So like there's there's a really, really fucking cool sort of conspiracy element that lies under the the surface of the uh of the setting where this you know this one group uh or you know corporation or organization or whatever knowing that the ashton was coming and know that the end of the world was coming made specific plans for the kind of world they wanted to rebuild afterwards and the palers are part of that they watch out and monitor the um sleepers and sleepers are the cryogenically frozen you know uh agents of this group who will wake up at specified times, 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, so on. And the uh, one of the sort of underlying tensions in the world, uh, you know, below the surface of what the characters are necessarily going on, the meta plot, if you will, is this tension between that and these kind of like immortal cyborg types who have, who did not go to sleep, who remained active. And... There, there's no magic in the setting. There's no, like, you know, um, it's not like uh, that there's, you know, gods or anything like that. There is definitely the spores, and there's also, like, like very advanced technology, which can seem indistinguishable from magic. But the, the I don't know, the that's just one of those kind of really interesting, like, oh, shit, I can incorporate that into... My games, you know, that's a really fucking cool idea. And what a cool way, like, a lich is a pretty badass adversary. Um, not only because of its capabilities, but just the concept of this ancient, powerful being who has seen so many, you know, years and has so much, uh, accumulated so much power and knowledge over time. Imagine that in the, in the form of an uh, insane uh, cyborg bent on revenge against, you know, uh, a group that's been gone for 600 years since civilization died. Um, that's a pretty, and then you, that's going on in the midst of this other very, very complex setting. I mentioned with the Voivodship, uh, the, um, that's also happening, or that is in a region where there are these vaults of palers as well, too. And not only, um, does that mean you've got some really interesting adversaries, uh, or characters if you want to play a paler, because you can, uh, it also means that you've got a, um, what do you call it? Uh, you've got a, a way of motivating uh, some of the characters because those vaults are full of really high technology. And even though you're dealing with a post-apocalyptic setting where technology has largely collapsed in a lot of places, there still are factions that know how to try and figure out how to use them and other factions that want to manipulate those factions. So uh, like the Scrappers is one that uh, you know goes into the, into the depths of the earth and, and recovers gear and shit like that. And there's the uh, chroniclers who, those are the techno mages. I, I kind of not mages, but techno shamans. They uh, they basically it's a bunch. Imagine a bunch of hackers that would have survived the apocalypse and, and realized we need to try and set up the internet. That's that. That's you know uh, a hive and a, and a local point of uh, of information. That's how we rebuild society. 
But then realizing that no one gives a shit when they're starving or, you know, trying to drive off roving bands of bandits. So instead of just trying to be helpful, what they did is they adopted all this crazy affectations of a chronicler's suit and different weaponry that's not, that's non-traditional weaponry, like sonic weaponry and stuff like that, to just make them out as if they've got scary powers. Uh, so they know their technology quite well, but also, you know, are, are pretty heavily, um, uh, in, you know, pretty heavily in, uh, veiled behind this layers of, of mysticism and, and secrets. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's hard not to talk about the setting without trying to just sit down and talk about it for hours and hours. Because, but again, part of the reason why I think people say, oh, just read the books, read the books, is because that act of discovery as you're going through them or as you're playing through the setting and learning about it, that's fascinating. There's so many neat ideas there and so, so many neat things and then also neat characters that flow from that. Uh, every one of the character, every one of the uh, cults ends with uh, not only a, an archetypical response to what the, uh, you know, what the or archetypical uh, perspectives on the other cults. It also offers sample PCs and they're very or sample characters and they're very very different. And then in, in addition, each of the adventures introduces a bunch of new characters, so you can really see how there can be an enormous amount of variety between those uh, when you you know those three different factors: uh, culture, cult, and concept. So, what does that mean for, um, you know, how it distinguishes from trivia? Well, <clears throat> the stuff that I'm learning in uh, Degenesis, or as, as you're playing through it, or as you're reading through it, it is helping you understand um, the broad strokes of the setting. You know, the adventures can offer you more specific stuff, but not the setting book. The setting book is much more broad strokes. You know, it gives you some information. Maybe it'll give you a paragraph about a city. Uh, and that's, that's really it. And then you've got a, a little bit of other information about others. It really leaves it for, for you to be able to, to decide for yourself how you want to flesh that out. But because you can also access the PDS for free, if you do want to read specific examples of how they see those things coming together, like in the um, In Thy Blood campaign we're playing, it gives you a really good kind of like regional source book for this uh, North Pergaran uh, area called Lucator. And what um, what the other ones do is is uh, give you like the the two other uh, adventures. One of them is called the Killing Game, and one of them is called Black Atlantic. They also include regional source books in there. So again, you can get more information and see how that you know what it looks like, what those worlds look like in uh, in the view of their creators. But the the thing that is, and again, like you can get them for free on on PDF, so you don't need to worry about paying any money to buy these things. You got to buy the physical copies and they're not cheap, but you know, you do, if what you want is just a, a book to access, you, you've got those resources. But um, what that means is, you know, that there, again, like there, you can't get around the fact that you do need to learn that stuff, uh, either by reading the books beforehand and talking about the, the them at the table or by learning about it, you know, through, and again, what, what I uh, to call them info dumps, I think is that suggests that it's not important. You know, I think the the dump, particularly part of that, suggests that that's a um, a that th there's a negative quality to that. And I I, I don't fault uh, that that I mean that's kind of how people uh, describe it in uh, video games and other role playing games as well, when or at least in the course of play. But it's in a game like the Genesis where the lore is 
so intentional and it is necessary for for enjoying you know the uh it's the way that those elements sort of fit together and how they inform how you're going to play your character and how your character is going to interact with the world uh you know like there's no neutral parties really in uh in the genesis uh every every cult has you know engenders strong opinions from other cults some more so than others but They've also made a, a clear point to say there's no... It's actually written in the, in the intro in the first book. Uh, there's no good guys. There's no good guys. There's no bad guys. There's just people. There's cults and you can choose which, you know, where, where you set your, your kind of morality. And when you're playing with a group of mixed uh, cultists, that makes for a really interesting dynamic, like a really good intraparty dynamic as the interests of the different characters could run at odds with each other and, and probably will in some cases. In addition, the characters' own personal goals that they get through their concept and the goals that the group has as a whole may conflict with their personal goals as well. And that's also really fascinating and makes for really interesting gameplay. Um, and I don't mean play in the sense of like engaging mechanics. I mean just playing the role-playing game at the table where you sit and you spend, a, you know, you, you engage the game mechanics to help figure out some dice rolls, maybe to inform how much the characters might know or how much they might access. But otherwise, you're just engaging with that fiction, and it's because of the richness of the adventure, because of the richness of the setting, you are able to have a very, very different experience. It's still exploration. If you haven't done the reading beforehand for the particulars of the world, then there, an element of that exploration is learning about the world, but it's also because of the, the, the beautiful complexity that they've introduced in the game, um, it's also a matter of figuring out how individual characters fit in that. In the adventure we were playing over the weekend, you know, there's a number of different sort of tensions that were uh, present in this town. Uh, for one, there was a tension between two different clans. There was a clan that is allied very strongly for generations with this group called the Anabaptists, a very religious order that uh, believes in kind of a Gnostic per, uh, view of, uh, of the world. And then there's another clan that uh, has wants absolutely nothing to do with them and is an enemy of them. So, but then the, the, there's also a conflict between the clan that is part of the faith and then the faith itself because there are... Um, you know, there are members of the nobility of that, uh, like, I mean, nobility, aristocracy is probably a better way of putting it, um, who, uh, or the elite, at least in the family, who aren't necessarily part of the church. But when the church is indistinguishable from the family, how do you pursue interests that are just for the church or when they're at odds? When you, you know, are forced to decide, uh, uh, make a decision, family over uh, church. And that led to some resentment as well, because people who have been loyal to this one house for generations and whatnot, who they may or may not be uh, devotees of the same religion, in this region they probably are, but they still feel that, you know, you're putting the priority of the church over the priority of the individuals, the people in your charge. And that's sort of, that's the payoff for that kind of medieval structure, right, is that the nobility get to get away with the crap they get away with because they keep the peasants safe. At least that's the idealized uh, perspective on it. So um, you have a tension between those, at least those two things there, 
In addition to, you know, there's other things going on in, in the world as well. But when you've got just those tensions, it's neat to then insert characters who are sort of representative of those different things. In our adventures, we met a governor who is representative of the clan that is, has been long been associated with the Anabaptists. We met the, his brother, who was the head of the local cloister. We met the, that guy's wife, who had no connection to the clan, but is a devout follower of the uh, church. And we met um, the lady love of the governor, who's actually from the uh, clan that doesn't like the, uh, the, the Anabaptists, the, the cult. So there's already this like fun and easy to uh, to understand dynamic between the different um, you know between the different factions, and that's that's really I mean that makes for some really easily understandable and and good drama. And then when you drop in that characters may have a connection with one or more of those different factions, it makes for really fun. Yeah, it makes for a fun. Uh, gaming experience, you know, and the lore is necessary for that. You know, the uh, uh, you, you don't need to necessarily know everything. Like, you know, the Palers never came up, the discussion of them never came up. Uh, there's other cults that just didn't really get more than, you know, maybe a, a couple minutes or so of, of discussion or uh, their reference once or twice as we've been playing, but they're not, you know, understanding the full particulars of their beliefs, their perspectives. It's just not necessary. So, you know, um, and in addition, I think for these games, um, the or for this particular game, the combination of concept, cult, and um, uh, culture, it allows you to get a, a rough idea of what the characters are like. But we played with all NPCs, and then over the course, or NPCs, or with pregens, and over the course of the game, we we discovered more about their backstory. You know, we met some NPCs and things like that. So even in a setting that is as lore heavy and and you know um, and has as much uh, information about it, you can still easily run an emergent uh, or at least have certain emergent elements in it, and you can also run an emergent game. I mean, we, what we were doing is, and this is, I mean, I think this is part of the ethos of how they want you to run the game because the adventures are published in such a way that they read like stories more so than traditional adventures. Like you read through and then it tells you events. There's sections that introduce you to the NPCs. There's sections that introduce you to, like the, the important characters in it. There's sections that introduce you to the setting. Uh, and then there is just a story kind of that tells you on what you know days or at what points things will, will happen. But it leaves it to you to figure out how that is actually gonna play out at your table. and. At, my, at first blush, I was like, okay, well, this is just, this is an awful lot of fucking work, and it's going to be hard to reference. And it is difficult to reference at some points, but what it, it is, is a lot easier to remember. It's a lot easier to remember what the key plot points are of, uh, of that game or that adventure, because I've already read an interesting, compelling story, and I've already read really fascinating um, depictions of the NPCs. So... And the NPC references are written very, very well and easy to reference. They give you clear, you know, what the role-playing notes are, what their tactics are, what their abilities are, and then also what their backstory is, all in one page. And that's really, really good and really helpful. And it also tells you what is important about the, the way that the, uh, you know, how to approach the adventures. Focus on the characters. And 
it made for, there was one point in the course of the session where I, I couldn't remember how uh, one part of the story, sort of uh, the particulars of it, as these guys were investigating one camp, I couldn't remember what the, the, like, what the sequence was, was there. I knew what they found there if they investigated, but I couldn't remember, like, you know, whether there were traps or whatever else. So I, I had to take a moment to re reread that section. But otherwise, it was, it was just a total joy. I was able to totally go off script with it. Um, we were able to let events fall out very differently or start to, you know, uh, unfold differently in terms of sequence and differently in terms of results as we were playing through. And it's very easy then to go back and look at the story and be like, okay, well, I need to shift this here now and I need to shift that. Um, it, I don't think it's something that a novice DM would, would really enjoy doing because it would be very frustrating. <laughs> but for, you know, it's not my first time to the rodeo, so I love it. I, I really, really love the way that's set. And again, that allows you to still have that emergent style of play. There's not a script that we're following here. There are events that are going on. There are characters that are set in place, but it is not a like Pathfinder style adventure path. It's not a D&D style, you know, mega adventure per se. It is a, there's characters that are introduced. There's events that will happen over the course. It's very similar to Icewind Dale, to be honest. And it's been just amazing playing through that. And it's that setting, you, you need to know the some of the elements of the setting, at least the ones that relate to your character and how your character relates to the rest of the world in order to make some of those decisions meaningful. So it's a different, the story is emergent, the characters can be emergent as well, but you need to have a grounding for what that world is because the it's the complexity and the texture of that world that makes the role playing and the playing of those characters so satisfying you know and without having to engage like we had uh, two characters in the course of our one of our saturday sessions where the players were struggling <laughs> with what the right decision for those characters would be and not in a like oh such a pain in the ass but like in an interesting exploration kind of way and i mean you know, I, I don't need um, every campaign to be like this. Um, you know, my I, I definitely like to get in the head of characters as we go. But I mean, for some of our, our campaigns, like our, our AD&D ones that are involving larger groups and, and uh, you know, a larger kind of, um, it's more of a, a, the momentum of the plot is more kind of important than the uh, individual journeys of the characters. Um, th this, for, for this game, man... And a part of it is the setting. It's, you know, the, the setting itself uh, gives you, you know, pays off dividends for taking the time to engage in that. There's, you know, nothing is a, is a caricature. Nothing is a, a stereotype in it. it. Everything has more nuance and more complexity to it than what, uh, you know, at first blush it, it appears to be. So uh, it just makes for a very, very, very fascinating world to explore uh, and that's part of the thing I think with the like it's not an info dump is an exercise in how you're communicating information um, if what you need is and I think the reason the reason that I, I really take umbrage with the phrasing of info dump is because it assumes that it's not important there's if it's a dump then there's going to be an element of that that isn't uh, it isn't necessarily digestible
or isn't necessary to process to continue participating in the game. And, but also, I mean, I think, in fairness, I think the way that uh, Hobbes meant it was that there was like, you know, block text or, or whatever, like, you know, now you're going to learn about the world. But that has to happen in any game. You know, there's different ways that you communicate that, sometimes through atmospheric world building, sometimes through, you know, um, through in-game conversations, uh, you know, in, in character conversations. Uh, but sometimes you need to have those conversations of like, okay, this is what your character knows about this place because none of us inhabit these worlds. None of us inhabit these fictional worlds. And for some settings, it's just going to require more orienting um, than what it will in others. You know, if you play in uh, Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms or whatnot, you're probably going to know, you know, if you've got any experience with D&D, &D, you're going to have an, an idea of what 90% of that experience is going to be like. Names of the gods may be a little different, but, I mean, elves are elves, dwarves are dwarves, halflings are halflings. Humans do their own things. There's probably going to be an evil kingdom. There's probably going to be a good kingdom. That kind of stuff, you know. But when it's something that is more unusual, like Degenesis, like Eclipse Phase, um, like Numenera, you know, like Ars Magica for that matter too. You know, Ars Magica, uh, it's, it's easy to think of it as just like, oh, it's a historical game, so you just need to know your history. But really it's the supernatural stuff is what you're going to be most focused on. So that requires a great deal of, of exploration. Now, one of the things that's also worth distinguishing here, I think, from some other more codified settings is that I felt the freedom to add, allow the characters to ad-lib characters or NPCs or contacts or things like that and relationships with them uh, and not feel that I was going to invalidate existing stuff. You know, like um, if you were asking characters to improvise elements of uh, the Forgotten Realms, they may get stuff wrong because Forgotten Realms has very detailed cultures for their different races and they have different, you know, uh, specifics for the different gods and like that's part of the appeal of that but I feel that stuff, the reason I feel that's trivia rather than lore is because the it is trivial. You know, it goes down to the uh, to the meaning of the trivia, <laughs> you know, word or the, the origin of that word. It does not have meaningful consequence. It does not inform how the characters will believe or, or pursue things. And, and that's not true for all of it. There are definitely elements of lore in the, in the setting there. But, you know, the fact that, like, the feast day for whatever the fuck God is on X day, is that really important for your character? Is your character going to be turning on that? Or is that just a little tidbit of trivia? You know, um, is it important that the, um, the gods manifest their will through specific you know, um, uh, uh, specific manifestations, you know, certain kinds of, of um, birds, certain kinds of, uh, um, I don't know, certain kinds of, um, you know, colors or sounds. Uh, well, that can be lore, but you need to present that to the character or the player at first. Players need to know that stuff. Because if they don't know the stuff, then it's meaningless when you incorporate it into the story. And it also means that you can't let the characters be creative in coming up with that stuff because it's already been dictated. Whereas in a game that doesn't, that has a looser, you know, setting, you're, you're free to do that. And uh, the Genesis, while it does have a, uh, there's a great deal to sort of learn about who the different factions are and stuff like that. Once you've got those fundamentals, there's an enormous amount of flexibility in what you can tell with the, you know, with the game. Um, you know, to that end, like I mentioned in the previous section that I had been thinking about 
what to, you know, what to running a one shot for my son. And like, I've already been thinking of, you could run um, a horror style thing. You can run a, a you know, um, you could run a, a Game of Thrones style dynastic, you know, fighting kind of thing. Uh, if you, especially like in the uh, Pergara, which is like, uh, well, it was Italy at one point in that region, there's, you know, Renaissance style uh, feuds between families. And if you had that as the backdrop for a, like a, you know, war for the throne kind of thing with some of the other factions thrown in for color, the way that the, uh, you know, the, uh, what are they called? The Meisters and the uh, church and whatnot is in, uh, in Game of Thrones. You can make for an enormously exciting and fun game and character-driven game as well. So you don't need to bite off everything. Uh, and depending on how you, or you can run something that's more militaristic or something that's more science-based or something that's more, you know, epic in scope. If there's a, you know, a MacGuffin the characters find and it's going to connect them to other, you know, um, other secrets, but they're also going to be pursued by other agents that want to try and find them. Like all of that stuff is, is possible within the scope of that uh, setting. So maybe what I'll do now is I'll pause here. This has been a long section uh, and then I'm going to talk just about the game itself and how I think that this all came together at the table. So let's end the section here and carry on in that one. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff of talking around the game and what I think about, uh, you know, the justifying the, the necessity of that, uh, of the you know, extensive lore as opposed to the, um, you know, and why I think I make a distinction between lore and trivia. You know, one thing I was thinking about... Um, as well, while I was waiting for this, the first or the second segment of the Genesis to uh, to process is, you know, lore is something I want to read about in the books. Trivia is stuff I want to improvise on the fly. You know, I, I don't, uh, from and this is a strictly personal thing, but like maybe one of the reasons why Forgotten Realms never really appealed to me is that the lore is not particularly deep. And this, you know, for those more vested in the Forgotten Realms, like my buddy Jared uh, could probably correct me on this, uh, but, and, and it's not to say there's no lore in it, there is some, you know, it's neat that the orcs come from another planet, uh, it's neat that some humans come from another planet, it's neat how the the backstory of the war and whatnot, uh, of the elves and uh, and whatnot, so there's, there's some interesting lore there, but in the Forgotten Realms products that I'm familiar with, particularly the second edition stuff, there's so much trivia, there's so much little stuff that's in there, and it's not like, here's an interesting character that you can use in your story. And in fairness to the game, it's it's written in a different time, right? Like, it's, it's a different um, per perspective on what's useful and what a gaming product should be like and what it should include and not include. And the, yeah, I don't know, the uh, the, the stuff from that period. Uh, and, the th and to be honest, the third edition stuff was a little bit like this as well. Uh, it had a great, like, this, the campaign setting book for 3rd edition was fantastic. It's a really, really great and very beautiful book. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of trivia. And I, in, in my campaigns, in my uh, uh, Icewind Dale campaign, I do like incorporating some of that trivia because it's cool and it, it's clever. But um, the reason that Forgotten Realms never really clicked for me on an on a ongoing basis, partly because it's sort of generic fantasy anyway, and I'd rather make up more of that stuff on the fly if I'm going to. Uh, like what I get to do when I run Greyhawk, but anyway. Uh, so that's that's what I'm thinking. It's that the, um, my, for my own personal preferences, lore I want, which is like the broad strokes, the deep sort of 
um, understanding of the factions and their importance and the people who are and why they're important for the player characters. Um, that stuff is more interesting to me. And I don't mean how that they necessarily have to be important, how they can be important uh, for the, the characters as well. Um, the, uh, yeah, the, what do you call it? Um, the Genesis game, though. Let's, let's just quickly talk about that. So, um, the Genesis, uh, the, like I said, the end of the world came with this thing called the Eschaton. And there's a couple of the cults that are sort of legacies of the, of the bygone world. But it's cool that they keep saying about how it's the death of civilization. Civil, uh, you know, an 8,000-year-old civilization died with the Eschaton. Uh, it really makes a distinction between the pre-cataclysmic world and, and the post-cataclysmic world. The, the bygone world is what is it's the way it's described in a lot of the material. Um, the uh, the some of those like legacy cults include the uh, Spitalians, who are sort of um, uh, the legacy of, of uh, surgeons and medical researchers who you know maintained a hospital uh, throughout the uh, uh, the um, the years and the centuries since the Ashaton, but have come to realize that they, you know, they need to, to be armed in order to protect themselves. So they're kind of like a militaristic uh, group as well that also uh, studies the primer and the spores and the spread of the alien, uh, you know, psychonauts and stuff like that, trying to prevent that. Uh, there's also the Helvetics, which are the legacy of some, um, uh, what do you call it? some uh, Swiss uh, soldiers and uh, politicians and, and rich folks who tried to hide basically in uh, to survive the apocalypse in a, an alpine fortress and it was they weren't 100 percent successful in doing that but for the most part they are so they are incredibly well armed they got incredibly defensive places and with the transformed world they also control some vital tri um, trade routes so they are for the most part neutral they, they hire out as mercenaries they don't try and take over other terrain or other areas um but they also sort of fight a ongoing sort of struggle against like you know um uh they call it i think bunker sickness is what they call it where it's just you know being stuck indoors in the same thing doing the same jobs over and over and over again for the for the whole your whole life um that can kind of wear on people's you know uh people's uh, uh mental fortitude um, there, I mentioned the chroniclers before too. That's the kind of techno shaman types as well. Uh, and then there's the palers, which I also mentioned. Uh, and then there's the ones that sort of emerged afterwards. And those are uh, three African groups or cults called the Neolibians, the Scourgers, and the um, uh, Anubians, who are sort of the mystics. Anubians are the mystics that sort of work with this African v variety of... Uh, of alien or spore-infused plants that they call the rays to uh, to affect some kind of like, you know, crazy interactions with their own biochemistry. Um, there is, the scourgers are sort of these holy warriors who uh, have taken up arms to sort of defend Africans. They're, they're, it's a bit of a racial um, component to it where they, they recognize the legacy of, uh, you know, uh, white Europeans in Africa has always been colonization, um, extraction, slavery, and whatnot. So they've formed this sort of warrior cult to protect um, Africans. And 
they, um, they see the uh, Europeans as crows. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to try and kill everyone, but it certainly does mean that, and I guess in the backstory as well too, it, it isn't helped by the fact that uh, uh, shortly after the Eschaton, um in what was Spain now called the Hip- and uh, Portugal now called the Hebraspania, uh, they built a land bridge uh, or a bridge to get to the North African uh, coastline to try and go and uh, access uh, oil, which had survived. And they tried to take it fairly forcefully. The Africans had a- access to um, st- uh, like uh, pre-Eschaton um, weaponry and armor and vehicles and stuff like that. So they pretty easily drove those people back and then they followed them across the land bridge and over the last couple hundred years they've been fighting an ongoing war in Hiberspania, you know, kind of like a latter day reverse reconquista and um, that's one of the sort of tensions that's, that's going on is the Africans and the Neo-Libyans are, are traders, they're, they're incredibly wealthy uh, traders who have centralized their clan's activities through a bank in Tripoli uh, that uh, sort of coordinates trade in kind of a mercantilist way. And um, the uh, other ones include the clans. Uh, there's a sort of a, a, a cult called the Apocalyptans that are have a foot in both worlds. They, they have uh, a ethos and belief system that predates the Eschaton and has been carried forward from that. But they also definitely are, are inhabitants of the post-Eschaton world and came into their own then. Um, there, I'm trying to think if, if I'm forgetting anyone. Oh yeah, there's the Jahamadans who are a, another religious kind of, uh, cult that, uh, developed in, uh, in response to, uh, they're kind of like, their beliefs are founded in kind of a syncretic version of elements of Judaism, elements of Christianity and elements of Islam. And uh, they're very family-focused, but they're also a warrior cult where they, instead of identifying with Christianity's lamb, they identify with the ram. So um, they're, there's a very strong like family you know, uh, element to it, and there's also a very, very strong religious quality to it and a sense of destiny and predestination and sacrifice, but also combat and war, uh, which leads them to be in conflict with some other... I mean, it doesn't mean that they fight everyone, necessarily. It just means they fight the enemies of the family. Uh, and the Anabaptists are the kind of final one, and I mentioned them as these... If you think of kind of like Latter-day Knights who believe in um, the... What do you call it? Uh, believe in the world being a, a corrupted place, and, and, and um, rather than being a, a creation of the divine, it's a creation of... The demiurge, the corrupted demiurge, that sort of fits with the world that is infected with an alien spore, right? So it, um, it is not surprising that they have had a great deal of success in spreading their faith. Uh, so those are the cults, and then there's the different regions, obviously, that uh, in, each, in each of those different regions, there are a different, or there is a different expression of the spores where the different um, asteroids fell, uh, those result in very different kinds of psychonauts, and I won't go into those too much because partly because I mean I, I'm, I'm still there's some I'd rather my players ex- learn about them through the course of play than just reading about them. Uh, but and again, if you uh, if it does sound like this is an interesting setting that you might want to explore, you can get the PDFs for free and, and uh, you know flip through them. And and it's 
I'd sooner you see them that way than have me spoil them for you because I will not do justice to the insanely detailed illustrations of the Psychonauts, which are so fucking cool. Uh, and that's, I guess, another thing I'll, I should say is just how gorgeous these books are, both in PDF and in, uh, in print. But for myself, just because I'm an old guy and I, I like my print versions, obviously I have my preference there because I like seeing the print versions, but the um, having those digital assets to draw images from was a huge way of immersing the players into that world. Like the, the having access to that much, not just like cool character stuff, like there's tons of illustrations in the books and in the adventures for, you know, everyday stuff. It's people in the street. It's people doing their things, you know, and that stuff is where it's really helpful for communicating what the real world is like, not just how badass the characters are. And again, that's sort of the struggle I have with some other post-apocalyptic games is like, I don't know what those quiet moments are like. I can tell you that I can picture in my head, having read the books, I can picture what, you know, a Jahamadan's uh, day is like, depending on what his or her station is in the family. Uh, same thing with an Anabaptist. Same thing with a Chronicler, you know. I got a, the, the richness of the world gives me an idea of what their, their childhood was probably like as well, too. And that could help me, communicate, you know, in discussion with the characters, how that would translate into how they're going to play their character, what they value, and, and so forth. And we don't need to have that beforehand. In fact, like, I, I really don't like... You know, uh, regular listeners of the uh, podcast will know I don't like extensive backstories. I'd much sooner see that overplay. And knowing what the world is like in the broad strokes, in the lore context, it's not important that, you know, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I harped on enough about the trivia versus lore thing, so I probably don't need to give any more examples of that. Uh, also, I'm struggling to come up with one right now. But... Um, it just means that, yeah, the, that the, the world, it doesn't prevent you from, um, from running that kind of emergent uh, and the kind of emergent story, emergent character development, the way you do in D&D and other games. It just means that the base level of, of knowledge of what the game is about, we take for granted, I think, sometimes what the assumptions are about elves and dwarves and whatnot in... Um, you know, in some of the games that we run. Um, person coming in with no knowledge of that stuff, or at least passing knowledge of it, may not know that, you know, may, may struggle with, okay, hold on, what, so wh why do I? There's different languages, you know, um, where do I come from? The, the, those are things that will require discussion because we just sort of, you know, we assume that that's the case. And I guess the other thing I'll say is that it, just because there is this extensive setting, it doesn't mean that you... You can't escape it altogether, but if you don't want to explore what your character's past was, if you don't want to explore what their relationship with their cult was, um, well, I guess, hmm, I was going to say that, you know, you don't necessarily need to do that because you can, like, it can be following a plot like our uh, In Thy Blood is, is definitely much more, there is a, a plot that's going on as well, too, where the characters are trying to uncover this murder uh, or the, the uh, murderer behind this, uh, this killing, but the... Uh, the way that the world helps you have a fully realized character without having to write a big backstory allows for lots of opportunities to to explore that that the the actual character and their beliefs. Um, so, I guess the long and the short of it is is that you know uh, 
from a strictly uh, how much do you need to do, work do you need to do to get this game to the table? It's a lot. There's a lot of reading you need to do. Uh, but it, I, I have found for myself, because of all the things I've just talked about over the last hour, I find it to be enormously rewarding. The, the work is certainly worth it. And the, 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 the trip to get there was really fascinating. I loved uncovering the world as I'm reading through stuff and then having a like, reference elsewhere and trying to you know, piece together, like, okay, what do they mean by this thing? It was amazing. And as the realization of what some of the, the bigger concepts are, you know, and, and secrets of the setting as well, too, that aren't just spelled out necessarily in certain places, you know, um, it's awesome. Oh, and the Anabaptists, I should mention as well, too, make use of uh, these special oils uh, said to be made from purified uh, spores uh, that helps enhance their abilities. And they, they happen to be named after the four um, rivers of heaven. And it's just another another bit of the... Oh, and there's another thing I like about the game too is that it distinguishes between experience points that you're getting every time you play and uh, some backgrounds. You have backgrounds, but the backgrounds will fluctuate over the course of play and they are awarded by the DM They're either or taken away. You know, if your character has done something to piss off their cult... They might lose some status in them. They might lose some access to resources in them. You know, if they've done something good for the cult or they've done something good for someone else, uh, they might gain points in it. So it's a cool way of separating that background element um, and keeping it in kind of the hands of the DM. And the trust is there that the DM will use it appropriately. But it allows the DM to reflect the changes that are happening in the world um, by granting characters those benefits while the characters still also get to control all the individual elements of their character, the skills, their attributes, and then there's these things called potentials, which are kind of like um, feats, or like and fifth edition feats, where they've got kind of a robust ability they grant you that uh, other characters cannot do, you know. Um, or, I mean, in some cases, it's just a flat bonus, but it also, it does t- tend to uh, give you a pretty cool uh, bonuses as well. So, the theory crafters can still build their characters as they gain XP and stuff like that, but the, you can also you don't need to worry about um, forcing the players to invest in uh, um, background elements. You know that's one of the problems I find with uh, games like GURPS and Hero is when you're going to gamify background elements like status or contacts or things like that. When you're introducing them in the game, how do you get around that issue? that the character is now has access to new contacts or new things that uh, should cost money, you know? And you, do you force them to spend money on that when other characters may not have to? Or do you just give that as a reward? And I mean, like, that's a discussion for another time. But it, I, I really, really appreciate that they've cut that stuff out. So the background setting stuff, the, it is a, um, a way that the, the DM can reward players and see, have them see mechanical change on their character sheet without requiring the characters to spend their carefully earned XP that they want to spend on skills and potentials, uh, forcing them to spend that on, on those background things. So it's another thing about the game that I, I really, really like. So overall, I think you, uh, you may not be surprised to find that I'm really, really, really enjoying the game. We, we played uh, for, uh, gosh, like I said, about 15 or more hours 
uh, about 10 or 11 hours on uh, Saturday, three hours last night, so it was 14, uh, and then uh, four hours or so on Friday. So 17 hours of it. 17 hours in, the game looks great. I did have to spend most of my Thursday and Friday finishing reading the books so I could I'd have a, a clear enough vision of what the, the world was like. So I, 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 it did, you know. Um, now, for myself, I rarely read through a, a rule book all the way through. You know, I, I'll read stuff that I need to get it to the table, and then I'll pick and you know I'll pick at it otherwise. So, if you're the type of person who does sit down and read a book, cover to cover, boom, and there you go. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say is that the the game and the setting and some of the adventures, Black Atlantic in particular, ha, um, cover distinctly adult topics like. Uh, I mentioned that this is a post-apocalyptic setting without the silliness. It also means that the, some of the ugliness that comes with uh, or can come with a post-apocalyptic setting is definitely there. Uh, it is definitely stuff you can downplay, uh, but there are certain things that just you cannot. Uh, you know, the um, it, it is definitely a, a definitely a darker or it contains a lot of dark elements. So if that isn't your your liking or isn't to your sensibilities, you, you know, don't be, don't be put off, uh, by, you know, some nudity in the, um, in the rule books or, you know, um, some graphic depictions of things in some of the adventures. Um, if that absolutely is not stuff you want to be exposed to, then I would definitely avoid the game. Um, if it's stuff that you, you know, have gradations of comfort with, check it out, see what you like. For myself, there's, there's definitely, there's stuff in the game <clears throat> that is, beyond what I would be comfortable presenting at my table, particularly because I, I stream games. However, it's easy to ignore that stuff. I just am not going to play up that stuff, and um, our focus is not going to be on that that content. You know, um, and yeah, so that's it. I guess the, the last thing I'll say as well, too, because I, and I introduced this, um, this may have been the third time I've said the last thing I'll say in this, thing, but <laughs> this is genuinely the last thing. The last thing I'll say is that I think the way to think about the game, and I said this to the guys, is as a science fiction game. It's not a, it is a post-apocalyptic game, but it's not post-apocalyptic fantasy. It's not post-apocalyptic superhero, you know, it is post-apocalyptic science fiction. And the reason I think that's an important distinction is because it reminds me more of Traveler, where the focus is on playing fully fleshed or at least credible humans as opposed to playing, um, you know, uh, fantastical archetypes. Uh, the story and the, and the interesting things that happen over the course of your adventures into Genesis is what happens to those characters as they're exposed to things, as they you know, um, as they are challenged. You're going to have other elements of it as well. And like I said, in the last section, you can definitely tell a lot of different stories with this. You know, um, swashbuckling kind of, um, not swashbuckling, but like pulpy uh, archaeology, post-apocalyptic archaeology. You can do, uh, you know, um, religious kind of stuff. You can do family-driven uh, drama, you know, dynastic uh, kind of wars type stuff. Um, but... Ultimately, because of the way that you make your character and then the way that those characters are then situated in the world by virtue of their culture and their uh, cult, it's very much about the the character. You know, it, their stories about 
Uh, I, I describe my science fiction games as like they're about us. They're about humans. It's about the human condition as opposed to about, you know, I don't know, whatever the other games. I, I, I can't tell you what the other, I guess the AD&D games are about exploration and about, um, you know, emergent story. But they're not really about those characters. And they're certainly not about the human condition. That's what this game is about. And it also says, you know, I think uh, what speaks to that is how we could have had such an engaging, long session without any combat. We had combat on uh, Friday, but, you know, we played so far into this. Um, and it's not to say that combat isn't fun. Combat was pretty good. It's, just, it's deadly, um, like you would expect from a, a game like Traveler or a more sci-fi thing. Um, but, you know, the characters who are badass combat characters, they're going to feel pretty competent if they're picking their fights pretty, uh, you know, well. They're not to jump in and take on four adversaries at once. Uh, and those who are not, however, who take on competent adversaries, it's they're going to have a bad day. <laughs> it's not going to end well for them. So, um, But anyway, I, uh, I will end that here. I'm going to do, uh, I'm planning on doing an overview of uh, uh, Degenesis on, in... Uh, for my channel, uh, but I'm going to wait on that until the uh, the newest edition comes in because I really want to have a physical copy of that Artifacts book that has the extra stuff. And again, if any of this sounds cool, go to genesis.com. You can read a bunch of information about the setting. You can download books for free. It's it's all there for the taking. And if even if you just steal ideas or steal illustrations or whatever uh, from it for your own games, you know, you've lost nothing there. But I think there is a really fascinating game that... Uh, you know, uh, to be engaged with, uh, with there. So that's my thoughts on the Genesis right now. Okay. So that is a very long episode. Uh, it has been a, quite a, a delay since my last episode. So I hope that this big fat one, um, will make up for the, uh, the absence over the last couple of weeks. Um, I, uh, you know, as has been the case since we started the, uh, uh, quarantine, I'm still at the time of recording, still working from home, so uh, I don't have my commute, which means that I don't really have a lot of opportunities to uh, to just when I'm doing nothing else to uh, to record this. Uh, so um, I, I'd like to say that I could try and find more opportunities to try and record these on a, on a regular basis. Uh, but realistically, it, it's hard to, you know, when I have X amount of hours ahead of me and I could be spending that time working or I could be spending time prepping for games or or whatever, or doing other things, you know, um, then it, uh, it it's difficult to try and find the opportunity to just record the uh, podcast. But I am going to try and uh, and do that. Uh, it feels now that the gaming marathon is behind me, and I've uh, I've run the Genesis, and it feels more like we're figuring out what our new normal is here. Um, I'm I'm going to try and find a way of slotting in that time, um, maybe after my sessions on the weekend or something like that. But uh, uh, but yeah, but I hope that you, uh, you enjoyed this. I mean, there's, uh, I, I know we're covering a lot of different, uh, stuff in this episode. I'll try and do a little more focused, uh, topics in my next one, but, uh, I'll close into saying, uh, first off, a, a big, big, big thank you to, uh, everyone who has started supporting us on our Patreon. Um, we, uh, uh, since the last recording, I can't remember if I mentioned it, uh, in the last episode, but we have a Patreon set up for, uh, Dungeon Musings. Now we've got a handful of patrons, which I'm for which I'm very, very grateful. And uh, their donations, uh, in addition to the... Um, uh, we have a Red Bubble store up now for Dungeon Musings as well with a bunch of illustrations that I've done for the different things like the map from our Night Below campaign, the uh, 
a bunch of the PC portraits from our Night Below game, uh, my map from my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game. We've got all those up there, and I'm continuing to add to the, the different uh, designs on there as I'm going through the, the roster of our Night Below game. Um, and um, the income from that and the uh, patrons, uh, the, the money that donated by the patrons, and then uh, ad revenue from uh, the YouTube channel, all of that has allowed us to start picking up some uh, players' handbooks for the... Um, the players in our uh, in our various games. Uh, so we've got uh, um, uh, I've got four copies so far. We need four more. But uh, <clears throat> what the your, the generosity of those donors and the willingness to put up with ads and the people who've been buying stuff on uh, Redbubble, what that's allowed me to do is to thank the players who uh, who play, uh, you know, and to give such great performances. <laughs> Uh, in uh, role-playing their characters and, you know, giving us all a good laugh. So thank you to, uh, to all of you for who have uh, supported that. Um, I hope that this finds you all healthy, uh, safe, and weathering the current crisis as well as can be expected. Uh, things are just crazy right now, and I hope that we're giving you a little break from, uh, from that craziness. Um, and until I see you again, thank you again. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming.